Hi everyone, my name is Carlo Andrea Meacci. I am the head of the energy and infrastructure team in Italy, and I spend a lot of time doing renewables work. Just to make an example, a couple of years ago, I closed renewables deals in Italy worth 3 billion euros, which made us by far the number one renewables law firm in Italy in terms of volumes, at least. Today is the fourth of a six-part series of podcasts on renewable energy disputes. It is a series in which uh, we seek to hear from our renewables disputes colleagues the tips and tricks of renewables disputes. And in particular today, I'm joined by Diffan Owen, who is a partner in our London office, and Luke Carbon, who is a senior associate in our Sydney office. Both work in our international division and construction dispute teams and have significant experience advising on disputes in the renewable space. Welcome, Diffan and Luke. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a bit about your renewables dispute practice? Of course. Um, why don't I go first, Luke? So, um, my name is Devan and I'm a partner in our London office. Um, I've spent my whole career at Ashurst. Um, can barely believe it, but I actually did a vacation scheme at the end of the last century at Ashurst. Um, I spent a few years in our Dubai office, um, but I returned to London a couple of years ago. But I still have a very strong connection with clients and our team in the Middle East. And I'm currently working with them on the number of uh, large energy disputes. And our international arbitration team globally is also very busy on a range of renewables disputes. And I know that our listeners have already heard from some of them already about that. Um, Luke, perhaps you could um, speak to some of those disputes too. Absolutely. Thanks, Dubbin. And um, I must confess, I, I'm not as old as you. But um, I do sit in the international arbitration and construction disputes teams with you. And I was based in London for a couple of years there, but I've only recently returned to the Sydney office. In London, I worked on some really interesting renewables disputes, and they were mostly international arbitrations in relation to wind and energy from waste projects. Now that I'm back in Australia, though, I'm still working on renewables disputes, but they're mostly in relation to large solar projects. Thank you very much both. I know you've been working on some very exciting projects, although today we're going to be talking about something maybe less exciting, which is the appointment of an arbitral tribunal. And I would really like to hear from you, you know, the tips and tricks of, you know, appointing an arbitral tribunal. So look, I don't know if you want to start and maybe give us some, uh, you know, your thoughts on why the, the appointment of an arbitral tribunal is important in the renewables dispute. Uh, yes, of course. Um, and I think on the last podcast, our colleague Dan mentioned that the process for appointing an arbitral tribunal is seemingly innocuous. And I think the key word that Dan used there is probably seemingly, because although it might seem straightforward, it really is important that an arbitral tribunal is appointed in the right way and that the parties pick the right arbitrators for them in their dispute. In terms of the process, it might not come as a surprise that how the tribunal is appointed depends on what the arbitration agreement says about the appointment. But whatever the arbitration agreement says or whatever the relevant institutional rules provide, it is important that the parties follow the agreed appointment process to the letter. And I say that because if they fail to do so, the arbitral award that is ultimately made through a long expensive and hard-fought process might be unenforceable. 
on that note, there are very few grounds under the New York Convention, which is the international convention for the recognition and enforcement of arbitral awards for a court refusing to enforce an award. However, one of the grounds is where the composition of the tribunal is not in accordance with the arbitration agreement between the parties. And in Australia, only last month, there was a high profile example of where the Australian courts refused to enforce an award made by a tribunal in Qatar because the tribunal had not been appointed properly. Luke, the example you gave there of the Qatari tribunal and the Australian courts refusing to enforce an award, I think it's quite an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's, it's uh, you know, it's not a jurisdiction where enforcement is typically uh, challenging or it's a jurisdiction where uh, it's particularly sort of arbitration friendly. And that just highlights to me the importance of ensuring that you're in, appointing your tribunal in accordance with the arbitration agreements. You know, there are a number of other jurisdictions where enforcement can be trickier and you can only imagine, you know, the difficulty you might have in, a, in some jurisdictions. My experience in the Middle East, for example, if you were to, to fail to adhere to the arbitration agreement when appointing your tribunal. So I think that's quite a, a good example of um, how key it is to get this right. Absolutely. Um, and notwithstanding that Australia is very much a pro-arbitration jurisdiction, I think the court said in that case that the failure to appoint a tribunal in the right way meant that that went to the very heart of the enforceability of the award. Thanks, both. That's actually very interesting. Now, what about the arbitrators, actually? Well, in terms of the arbitrators themselves, who they are and what qualities they have will also be incredibly important in an arbitration that is particularly the case, I think, in a renewables dispute where the arbitration might be dealing with new technology or a new regulatory regime, for example. I listened to some of the earlier podcasts in this series and a number of speakers have noted that one of the significant advantages of international arbitration over litigation is being able to appoint your own decision makers. But that probably only holds true if you choose the right tribunal for the job. Your arbitrators are going to decide not only the outcome of the dispute, but also the procedure, the timing, and other important aspects of how the dispute is going to be resolved. So parties need to think carefully about who their arbitrator or arbitrators will be and whether they're right for their arbitration. Thank you, Luke. I would actually like to dig a bit into some of the points that you made, and particularly regarding the process for the appointment of the arbitrators. Is there anything that our listener would like, would need to know in relation to that? Dovin, do you want to take that one? Sure. So as Luke said, the starting point is really the arbitration agreement itself. And that will provide some guidance in terms of the number of arbitrators to be appointed, how they're to be appointed. You know, is it by the parties themselves or is it by the institutions? So that's the starting point. If it's a sole arbitrator, usually at arbitration agreements provide that parties are to try and agree on the sole arbitrator and failing that agreement then there will ordinarily be a mechanism which between the parties um, and that will usually be that an institution will go ahead and make the appointment. Now, I've been involved in a case recently actually where the parties, a party started at arbitration having essentially uh, ignored that obligation to try agree upon an arbitrator, sole arbitrator, and that can certainly lead to arguments in an arbitration that has been commenced prematurely. So it's certainly worth reviewing the arbitration agreement carefully and making sure that you've adhered with the obligations. 
if there's going to be three arbitrators, two are usually appointed by the parties, and then either the two will appoint the presiding arbitrator or the institution will uh, appoint the arbitrator. If in some cases the arbitration agreement says nothing about the appointment of arbitrators, how many, etc., then the rules of the institutions do deal with that scenario. The default circumstance is usually that there's there will be a sole arbitrator, so just one, uh, unless uh, the institution decides that it'd be more suitable to have three. But we do find it's more it's preferable to set out in your arbitration agreements, you know, the number of arbitrators, so that you don't have to have a dispute as to whether the case is suitable for one or more than one. I think that just it just highlights the importance of making sure that the arbitration agreement ticks off the appointment and number of arbitrators as it does other things such as you know the language, the seat of the arbitration, the arbitration rules, et cetera. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, that's interesting. But with specific reference to renewables, uh, is there anything specific or what you said apply, applies equally to renewables, say in terms of tribunals and appointment processes? I think it's in re the renewable space, the disputes tend to be large um, and complex. So if you think about a dispute on a solar project, you know, and delays to the construction of that project, for example, that could be a dispute that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and it could include significant issues. And in that case, what we usually see and what we usually advise is that the parties provide for there to be three arbitrators, uh, and they use, you know, one of the the leading sorts of institutions to, to in respect of um, of managing the arbitration, and that's because um, of the value and the complexity. Um, and in, in my experience, the ex extra time and expense of having three arbitrators as opposed to one is is worthwhile in those sorts of cases, um, uh, which are those types of disputes you usually see in the renewable space, um, where there can be issues around complexity of technology, for example. In terms of the arbitrators themselves, well, you, you know, you see a range really of, you know, retired judges, senior lawyers, or industry experts, um, and there are quite a few arbitrators who are developing a, a, a bit of a specialism for renewables disputes, um, which is obviously important. One of the things that the parties tend to forget is that the institution also has a role in uh, appointment of arbitrators. You know, so for example, in that default situation we were talking about, or where parties can't reach an agreement on the arbitrators. And an example of that is that the, the LCAA keeps a database of arbitrators. So that includes information to help them choose, um, such as language skills and legal and industry experience. So it's worth bearing in mind the institution in question who they might appoint from and the lists and databases they may have of suitable arbitrators. So the question is, can we agree upfront actually, you know, who would be the arbitrator or is it something that we need to agree later? Yeah, this is, this is very tempting, Carlo Andrea, and I, and I completely understand why projects lawyers, um, people who live and breathe the renewables sector um, have particular types of individuals in mind who they think would be suitable to uh, resolve these disputes. And what we 
occasionally see is that parties have tried to identify specific individuals to act as arbitrators you know, in their agreements. Now that can be tempting, but, but in my view, that's a mistake because by the time the dispute arises, you know, that individual might be unavailable, they might be indisposed, they might even be dead. They could actually also just be unsuitable for the type of dispute. You know, if you get an expert in the technology, an engineer, and you think actually he would be a fantastic arbitrator, the dispute that arises might be, you know, quite a standard contractual interpretation of legal dispute. So I wouldn't recommend that particular individuals get included as as arbitrators in an arbitration agreement. Now, the other possibility is that you set out in your arbitration agreement the characteristics or qualifications that an arbitrator should have. So, you know, someone who knows the industry or the particular uh, types of projects. Again, because of the difficulty of, of predicting the type of disputes, there is some risk associated with that. Um, and I do think that if you just leave your agreement silent, that does give you more flexibility. You can always choose an arbitrator that has all those characteristics you know, when the dispute arises. However, if, you, if you're going to include in your arbitration agreement some relevant qualifications for the arbitrator, then what I would say is you know, just be very clear and carefully word that provision. Don't be too specific because that might lead you to having a dispute where you can't find a qualified individual. And also don't be too vague because that could just make it very difficult to identify um, the type of person to appoint. You know what, I think it's a very good idea. We'll simply follow that advice for the next contract that I will draft. Now, going back to Luke, now this in terms of qualifications, but is there anything else uh, be, beyond qualifications that we should um, take into account uh, when appointing arbitrators in a renewable dispute? Sure. Well, I think there are quite a number of considerations that need to be taken into account. There are probably some key general ones that apply to all disputes and then a couple of specific points for renewables disputes that are worth mentioning. Firstly, an arbitrator's qualifications are very important. They might be legal qualifications, for example, whether they are from a civil or a common law background. Or you might want an arbitrator who has commercial or technical background in the renewable sector. It really depends on what your dispute is about and what your arbitration might involve. But certainly in the renewable space, we're often looking for people who have experience in the sector so that they can get across the issues in dispute quickly. Second, you're always going to want to make sure that your arbitrator has the right experience because they need to run your arbitration properly and efficiently so that you end up with an enforceable award in the most painless way possible. Third, and this might seem obvious, but it's something that is often overlooked, is whether your arbitrator is going to be available when you need them to be. What we sometimes see is arbitrators who are very busy and perhaps stretch a little too thin. And so when parties are trying to set hearing dates, it becomes difficult to set a time in the diary, particularly when everyone's busy the three arbitrators are busy, the legal teams are busy, and the experts and witnesses are busy. Fourth, and perhaps most importantly, in my view, is if you're going to be nominating an arbitrator, then you should be a bit strategic about it. You should try and find out whether they're 
going to have a view or an approach to the arbitration in a way that suits your interests. Um, for example, if a party has a strong case on the law, they might want to appoint an arbitrator who is a so-called black letter lawyer rather than someone who is more likely to take a commercial approach. And what we usually do is take some time researching presential arbitrators. And we try and see whether they have any published judgments, awards or papers that might shed some light on their views. And it's perfectly legitimate to interview arbitrators too, to try and get a sense of how they might approach your arbitration. Finally, diversity is also a key consideration for us and increasingly many of our clients. Ashurst is a signatory to the Equal Representation in Arbitration Pledge, which is a pledge to improve the representation of women in arbitration. And we will always consider whether there's any female arbitrators who might be suitable for an appointment. That's in any event consistent with many of our clients' equitable briefing policies. Uh, similarly, our clients will sometimes want to know that we've considered whether any local arbitrators might be suitable rather than us just proposing the usual big names from the main arbitration hubs. I think I would just add, you know, in terms of appointment of arbitrators, often you have as we've discussed, you, you know, a number of characteristics or qualifications that you would like your arbitrator to have, but it can be sometimes a bit like, you know, buying a house, there's, there will always be a bit of a compromise. So if, if you think about an example of a solar plant dispute in Jordan, you know, governed by Jordanian law, but, but held in the English language, you know, you, you might not be straightforward to identify someone who has both the you know the legal background that you would want the global sorts of arbitration experience you might want the technical expertise that you you would like in terms of knowledge of the type of project the type of technology and you'll have to just balance those things and prioritize the requirements essentially as to what you think is you know will be best in the particular situation in terms of the characteristics of the arbitrator and also of course taking into account the fact there will be an opportunity in an arbitration to educate the arbitrator you know through written submissions through expert evidence etc that's right so so much to bear in mind but so after you've made your appointment, uh, you know, how do you go about getting the key points across to the arbitrators? Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that, that, that's quite a broad ranging question, Calandra. And I think that's really the key function of, you know, the advocates in an arbitration itself. And, and what you can't do, of course, is wait until the end and the hearing to do so. And, and that starts, you know, from the very beginning through your written submissions in explaining the technical elements, the legal elements of the case. And as you know well, having explained projects to us on a number of occasions, uh, in the renewables disputes, that is often extremely interesting, but, but can be quite technical and difficult to explain in a really persuasive way. So I think that there's, that there's obviously a skill to it in terms of the written submissions itself. There are a couple of options in arbitrations in relation to the written documents. Um, one option is to adopt a, what's called a memorial approach, and that's where all your evidence is filed together with your written pleadings at the beginning. The second is a, is a more sort of sequential one, which is more similar to English and I assume Australian type litigation, where you have 
written pleadings, and then at a later stage, you put in your witness statements and expert reports. There are pros and cons for both. Uh, and it's interesting that arbitrations uh, that may have the same tribunal, that may have the same issues, will feel quite different depending on how, which approach is adopted. For the memorial approach, you know, where everything's front-loaded, that could be more efficient. You know, parties have to put their cards on the table up front. So there's maybe a bit less of an opportunity to be blindsided later. For the sequential sort of pleadings approach, you know, the potential advantage of that is that you put in your written submissions uh, and then your expert and factual evidence comes later. And that only really has to be on things that are in dispute. So there's a lot to think about just in those sorts of written pleading stage. In terms of other tools to educate arbitral tribunals, one of the ones that historically was used to great effect was site visits. And you know how ex excited lawyers get when we get the opportunity to do a site visit, and that's no different for arbitral tribunals. Um, that's obviously, and actually very valuable as well, you know, gives you the opportunity to see what's been written on paper um, and brings it all into context. So if you're looking at a, a wind project and turbines and issues with turbines, then the ability to, to see those sorts of things just brings it all into 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 color as it were obviously that's been very difficult over the last year or so those have been very rare those types of site visits so you know a lot more thought needs to be given to how you might present your case through demonstratives pictures presentations and it's a real skill now for experts as well to be able to do that to explain what's quite technical in, in quite simple terms so there's a lot to think about there in terms of educating uh, tribunals. Thanks, Nathan. And yes, I agree. I want the site visit too. <laughs> but seriously, now, at this point in the podcast, uh, we always ask our speakers for their best uh, renewable dispute war story. Now, can either of you share one with us today? <laughs> well, mine isn't so much a war story, but I thought I'd share an experience that I'm having right now on two arbitrations that I'm working on because I think it demonstrates the importance of the appointment of the arbitral tribunal and a number of the points that we've just been discussing. I'm working on two arbitrations at the moment. Both are arbitrations under the ICC rules. Both are renewable energy projects. Both involve significant variation and extension of times claims. And both involve a number of issues about the interpretation of the relevant contracts. One is an energy from waste project and the other is a solar project, but otherwise all things are essentially equal except for the tribunals. On the one hand, one tribunal is made up of a former judge and two senior barristers. And on the other hand, the other tribunal is a former law firm partner and now an academic who's appointed as a sole arbitrator. Now, all of them are obviously very qualified individuals and they all have significant experience as arbitrators, but the approach that they are taking to the arbitrations is really different. The approach to the pleadings is different. The approach to document production is different and their availability and the approach to the timetables is different. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that one approach is really wrong or right, but my clients and I are having very different experiences on the two arbitrations. 
And I think that goes to show how important it is to think about some of the issues that we discussed today up front so that parties appoint the right tribunal for them and their arbitration. Dovin, do you have a, a better war story for us? I'm not sure mine is a war story either, but but it's maybe a recent experience which actually is worth flagging because maybe a bit more common than people might realize. So on a recent arbitration, we were feeling pretty confident after the final hearing and were eagerly awaiting the award and were then informed, unfortunately, that the presiding arbitrator was having to resign uh, due to ill health. So uh, after the final hearing, but before the award was issued, and that actually, he was required to do that in quite a strange situation where there seemed to have been a dispute between members of the tribunal as to, as to how the award should be produced and whether he, he should be resigning or not. In any, in any event, he resigned. Now, that net led to a number of challenges from our perspective. What happens in terms of the appointment of a new chairman? What happens in terms of the information to be provided to the individual? What, to what extent do things have to be repeated? Um, is there going to need to be another hearing? What documents are provided to the chairman, new chairman? Um, there was also a question in that case as to whether an extension would be provided to the tribunal to render their award, because it was in a jurisdiction where an award had to be produced within a certain period of time. Now, all those things needed to be considered against the context of ensuring that that award, once issued, would not be open to challenge. Now, actually, you know, the death or resignation of an arbitrator is much more client, common than clients might expect. You, you know, and I was looking at this, and the figures from the ICC suggest that you know, they face that issue with several arbitrators every year. You know, the average age, perhaps going back to your diversity point earlier, Lou, of an arbitrator is over 55. And you know, the resignation or death of an arbitrator can have quite significant economic and procedural effect on the conduct of an arbitration, you know, particularly as, it, as it was the case in, in my case, where the hearings have begun or been completed. So you know, it's a situation we've come across a number of times in different ways, but um, it's not always one that's uh, sort of envisaged at the beginning of an arbitra arbitration, obviously difficult to predict. I know I said at the beginning of this podcast, Dovin, that I wasn't as old as you, but even me in my career, I've had that experience as well with an arbitrator having to step aside. Not that much younger than me, I don't think. <laughs> um, can I also, Calandre, would you mind if I just mentioned just one thing, which is maybe it is relevant, tangentially relevant, but it's a recent development in the arbitration world, which I think will be of interest to those in the renewable sector, particularly with projects in the Middle East. So in late September, Dubai, uh, through a decree, abolished the DIFC LCIA Arbitration Centre and the Emirates Maritime Arbitration Centre. And it's uh, looking to fold their op operations into the Dubai International Arbitration Centre, so DIAC, as it's called. Now, the DIFC LCIA has actually been you know, increasingly popular in recent years, including for renewables disputes. And so this is a development that's certainly worth keeping an eye on. You know, it creates some uncertainty in terms of those arbitrations that are ongoing and for contracts that provide for DIFC LCAA arbitration. Seems to me that there's a risk that parties could 
seek to avoid or challenge awards in the future due to those uncertainties. So as I say, worth keeping an eye on for those in the renewable sector, particularly if they have arbitration provisions that provide for DIFC LCAA, and, and obviously to, to obtain advice if they've got any concerns. Thank you very much, Bob. That's all we have time for. Thanks very much for having us, and it was good to speak to you both. Thanks both. Look forward to seeing you in person soon. If any of our listeners wish to get in touch with Defan Luke or myself, our details are on the Ashurst website at ashurst.com. And if you'd like to learn more uh, on our podcast, uh, where my partner Anthony Skinner will be speaking to Rob Palmer and Lucy McKenzie about evidence in renewable disputes, witnesses, experts, and documents, how to get the best out of this, what challenges can arise, and how to circumvent them, then look out for our next podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye for now. If you enjoy Ashurst Legal Outlook, why not check out our other two podcast series as well? Ashurst Business Agenda tackles the big strategic issues that business leaders face. And ESG Matters at Ashurst reveals how business leaders are rising to mounting environmental, social and governance challenges. You can listen and subscribe to Business Agenda and ESG Matters wherever you get your podcasts.